Okay, welcome everybody to CSIS, and I want to extend that welcome to those joining us online. My name is Moises Rendon. I'm the Associate Director and Associate Fellow of the Americas Program here at CSIS. And I don't think I've been in a more timely and pressing, pressing public discussion than the one that we're going to have just right now. And the situation in Venezuela is critical, and what just happened yesterday will have the potential to shape the country's future and how the international community is going to respond is going to really, really mark the path on, on, on whether Venezuela can escape from its authoritarian rules and, and transition to democracy. So I'm very excited to see all of you, to those watching online, to have such an important panel, an impressive panel here. Um, while the region is overwhelmed with, with waves of new refugees and migrants in, the, in Venezuela, again, yesterday we have a very important event. Um, and according to the Venezuelan constitution uh, on January 10th, it, it was the start of a new presidential period. However, the elections held in 2018 and were not, uh, were not free and, and were unfair. And that's why the international community, about 50 countries of the international community did not recognize it. And I want to show you the map that we just did in CSIS. Um, just a click, please, yeah. So yeah, about 50 countries of the international community did not recognize the, the, the Venezuelan presidential election in 2018. And, and this is one of, thank you, this is one of the big reasons why we're here. Um, what, what does this mean for Venezuela? What does this mean for the international community? And how should we all think in responding to this crisis? Um, um, and, and just to flag uh, the international community response include the Lima Group, which are the most important Latin American countries, and uh, the US, Germany, France, the OAS yesterday came out with a very strong declaration not recognizing Maduro as president. So we, we have a lot of things moving quick, and, and, and that's why this type of discussion is just critical to have. Um, so in the face, on the face of such uncertainty, we have Two of the top most important minds when it comes to Venezuelan policy, and we're really honored to have both of them. Um, most of you know Ambassador Brownfield. Uh, he's a legendary ambassador. He, he really, he was the US ambassador to Chile, to Colombia, and to Venezuela. Uh, most recently, he was Assistant Secretary for Drugs and Law Enforcement at the State Department, running a portfolio of more than 80 countries. His responsibilities range from policy, police training and assisting in Afghanistan and Iraq, massive anti-drug efforts in Colombia and Mexico, crisis management in Central America, and police development in the Palestine West Bank, to maritime law enforcement in, South, in the South China Sea. Um, he's also an, a, a senior advisor at CSAS, and I'm going to say it before he says it, he's a non-compensated senior advisor at CSAS. <laughs> but we're really, really honored to have you in the CSAS family, Ambassador, so thank you, thank you for being here. Um, and last but not least, uh, Fernando Kutz, he's a bright policy maker uh, here in Washington. He's a senior associate at the Cohen Group. He previously served as senior advisor to the National Security Advisor, General McMaster, at, as director for South America and as acting senior director for Western Hemisphere Affairs at the National Security Council. He joined the U.S. government as presidential management fellow in USAID, and then he worked on President Obama's 
um, team in the White House and, le and later served as, as, as a special advisor for President Obama's trip to Cuba. So he has a very interesting background to work in two very different administrations, like the Obama administration and the Trump administration. So thank you, Fernando, for being here. We're really deli delighted to have you as well. Just the structure of the event very quick so you have an idea how, is, how are we going to run, right? And if we, we're going to focus on three themes. And today, uh, right now, we're going to focus on, on what happened yesterday, why are we here discussing Maduro's lack of legitimacy, what is this means. And then we're going to talk about the international community response. We're going to assess the Lima Group declaration from January 4th, which is a non-presidential declaration from Latin American countries. So we're going to be talking about those two. And then finally, we're going to be talking about the diplomatic, legal, and political implications moving forward. Um, what happened yesterday has legal, important legal implications moving forward. So where are those implications? What are the most important? And, and, and where should we be thinking on responding to these implications? And finally, we're going to open the, to the audience for Q&A. So I appreciate your patience to, to, to wait for that section. We're going to make sure to have enough time to, to cover that section as well. So yeah, with no further ado, let me see. Well, Ambassador, thank you again for, for being here with us. Um, like, like we mentioned, this is a critical time. Many of the eyes and ears of the international community are watching us. So tell us what happened yesterday. What is, what is your assessment of what happened yesterday? I will start by apologizing to anyone who feels that dressed in this throwback 1930s Elliot Ness and the Untouchables suit uh, suggests that I must be at least 100 years old. I acknowledge it is the warmest suit that I have, and since I actually walked here this morning down from, from Wisconsin Avenue, I, my apology is only for the appearance, not for the fact that I am wearing this. <laughs> Moises, if I could offer one man's opinion, and we'll get a better opinion uh, after I finish from the distinguished gentleman to my right, your left, I would suggest that the issue here is fundamentally the legitimacy of the government that self-inaugurated itself for a second term yesterday in Caracas uh, in the Supreme Court building. And since you have said the word legal two or three times in your introduction, let me try to address that issue from a legal perspective. We are not located in Venezuela, so therefore we're not articulating a domestic position. We are part of the international community that is observing, assessing, and commenting on Venezuela. So what does international, they don't call it common law, they call it customary law, say about the legitimacy of governments? If you pull out your international law textbooks, you will find that there are two bases by which legally, one can say that a national government is illegitimate. One is the means by which it comes to power. To a certain extent, you could say this is the Augusto Pinochet model or example. There are some, I don't 
put myself completely in that category, but some who say uh, that Mr. Pinochet did a fairly good job while exercising the presidency of Chile for whatever it was, 16 years. Again, I don't put myself in that category, but even if you are in that category, you have to acknowledge that the gentleman took power, arrived in office through illegitimate means. If you take a look based upon that standard uh, at Venezuela, you will see at best a questionable election and election process in May of 2018, uh, you will find that the National Assembly, the constitutionally elected National Assembly, declared that election null and void. You will find that the Supreme Court, that which actually was more or less appointed constitutionally as opposed to the current body that asserts that they are the Supreme Court. That Supreme Court not only determined that the elections were null and void, but barred Nicolas Maduro from assuming office. Uh, you will find, as, as we look at the map, and Moises has just said more than 50 governments. In fact, I was having coffee with a gentleman who works for the Washington Post yesterday, who I will not further name, even though I do not see him in this group, but we were both off the record, so you can pull my fingernails out. I will not say who it was. He, however, said he thought it was about 70 governments. I'll take his number. Uh, he's for the Washington Post, after all. As many as 70 governments have mm. determined uh, and re uh, that the elections were illegitimate and rejected their results. And finally, among international organizations, in some way or another, the OAS, the European Union, the Group of Seven, the Group of Twenty, and perhaps most important, the Group of Lima, have all rejected those results. Have we therefore passed the threshold of the first test, which is to say Mr. Maduro, as of yesterday, came to office under illegitimate circumstances? I would argue that we have. Customary international law says there is a second way uh, that a government can be declared illegitimate. And this is, and I'm much more confident saying this, this is the Adolf Hitler model, which is to say a government or an individual who comes to power through democratic or constitutional means. Most historians agree that Adolf Hitler did in fact win the election for the chancellor, chancellery uh, in 1933, but then subsequently acts in a, an extra-constitutional, non-democratic manner. Does Mr. Maduro meet that test? Let's take a look at 10 years of public reporting on human rights violations, on corruption, on taking steps to repress uh, democracy and democratic activities of illicit, criminal, organized criminal activity through all parts of the government, resulting in sanctions not just from my own beloved government, but other institutions and countries around the world. Does this pass the Hitler test? Uh, I would argue you could make a strong case that it does. So by either of the two standards established by customary international law to determine the legitimacy of a sovereign government arrived in office through illegitimate means or behaved in an illegitimate manner after arriving in office, I suggest that the Maduro government meets both of those tests.
End of my presentation, Your Honor. Thank you, Ambassador. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Fernando, let's get your thoughts on, on what happened on January 10th uh, yesterday, and, and then we move from there on questions and follow discussions. Absolutely. Um, and, and first of all, uh, I just want to uh, thank you, uh, Moses, for putting this on, CSIS for having us. Uh, Ambassador, it's an honor to be with you uh, here on stage. I, what a uh, diplomat. <laughs> I have a few more years than you in experience, but you'll get there one day. <laughs> I'll be dead by then. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, it's, it's, um, uh, it's real, real fun to be here. And so thank you all also for coming and for uh, constantly supporting this uh, very important cause. Uh, you know, I, I think what started in 2016 and what I think is uh, where I want to start at least is 2016 is how we got to yesterday. Uh, obviously, there's a lot more you could go back. You could you know, argue that it started way earlier, of course, but, but let's just as a point uh, start in 2016. Uh, in 2016, uh, as, as I'm sure many of you recall, uh, there was a recall referendum that was being put on together by the opposition. A lot of the opposition was uh, scrambling to figure out how to deal with Maduro. Uh, he was not very popular. The economy was going down. Things were starting to really kind of uh, hit a, a wall in Venezuela, and people were realizing it was time for change. And so the opposition finally pulls the plug and starts to put together this recall referendum. Up until that point, was Maduro democratically uh, elected? Was he a legitimate leader? I believe so. I believe until that point, you know, you love him or hate him, but uh, he, he, for the most part, was a legitimate democratic leader. Uh, but that's where things changed. Uh, the, the referendum never went forward. Uh, Maduro repeatedly got in its way, and, and his Supreme Court, which is you know, nothing uh, but a joke at this point, uh, you know, repeatedly got in, in the way of the referendum to the point where eventually they just completely shut it down and said it's not going to happen. Right? Then, then, so to me, that was a critical point of uh, defining where is it that he went from being a legitimate democratic leader to no longer being a legitimate democratic leader. Right? At the point where, as the ambassador mentioned, you cease to respect the institutions of democracy uh, is a point where even if you had been elected at, at first, and, and in this case he had been uh, at, at that point still, uh, you, you are no longer a legitimate democratic leader. But then it got worse in 2017, right? Now uh, opposition gets rallied up, the people of Venezuela start saying, hey, wait a second, this isn't democracy, and by the way, the humanitarian situation is getting horrible on the ground, we can't find food, we can't find uh, medicine, uh, and so the protests start in the summer of, or spring of 17, things start getting really bad, of course Maduro doubles down, pulls an Assad, starts shooting people instead of uh, trying to improve the situation, uh, and, uh, and then you get to the referendums, right? So then you're in July of 17. July of 17, very, very interesting referendums happened. Two uh, that were a week apart. One put on by the opposition. The opposition says, hey, come out, support us, and say that you're against Maduro. Essentially, you're against the reforming of the Constitution that Maduro wanted to do. Uh, and the other put on by Maduro, saying, hey, come support me and say that you're in favor of the constitutional reforms. Well, what happens? Uh, July, late July, we have the, the, the referendum put on by the opposition. It draws 7.2 million people. Now, 7.2 million people is a pretty significant number. Uh, the next week, we have the referendum put on by Maduro, and you know, if you believe his numbers, which have totally been unverified, it's, it draws about the same amount of people. But remember, we know his numbers are not true. We know that the opposition allowed there to be international monitors, and Maduro did not. We know that the company that ran his election process actually came out publicly and said that the numbers had been tampered with. So now we say, well, okay, so more people in Venezuela were against this than were for this. That's basic democracy, that's basic referendums, 
And yet, again, Maduro ignores the will of the people, ignores democracy, and says, we will reform the Constitution. That's what the people voted for, even though that's not true. That, to me, was beyond the step of saying, hey, this guy isn't democratically elected leader anymore. That's when he crossed into dictatorship, right? And sure enough, the next day, uh, at the, the United States government came out. General McMaster went to the White House podium and, uh, and declared Maduro a dictator. Right? That was July 31st of 2017, I believe. So, so that was a moment where the United States showed leadership, where the region was maybe not fully there yet, but the Venezuelan people, I think, had been, and where we crossed that threshold from democratic leader to dictator. Now, the United States government does not call somebody a dictator lightly. In fact, when we labeled Maduro a dictator, there were, he was only the fourth living head of state that we had labeled a dictator. Uh, Kim Jong-un in North Korea, it was Assad in Syria, and it was, uh, it was Mugabe down in Zimbabwe, right? That was it. That's the exclusive club that he uh, had the honor of joining at that point, right? Uh, not, not a light uh, moment for the United States government. And yet, we were firmly of the belief that he had crossed that threshold. And so sure enough, when you know, a few months later, nine months later in uh, uh, 2018, uh, these illegitimate elections take place, and of course the opposition doesn't take part, nobody believes that they're gonna be fair or honest, uh, and uh, you know, the, the uh, elections still take place. And even if you believe his numbers, again, which we know from time and again that are inflated, we know they are not real, but even if you believe his numbers, six million people show up to vote for him in May of 2018. Now remember, nine months earlier, the referendum that the opposition put together has 7.2 million show up against him. So again, democracy, right? What do the people actually want? The people do not want Maduro. So to me, what happened yesterday with this inauguration was the culmination of these moments that have just completely and utterly destroyed any semblance of democracy within Venezuela. He is a dictator. There is no doubt in my mind about that. The United States government has recognized that. And I think what happened yesterday was the international community finally came to terms with that, beyond the United States, beyond the Venezuelan people. Now, what's, uh, you know, what's perhaps a bit frustrating, I'm sure we'll get to this later, is that uh, whereas in the summer of 17, the Venezuelan people were kind of rallied up and there, and the international community wasn't fully there and kind of, in my opinion, let them down a bit, uh, now it seems like the, the uh, international community is rallied up and kind of there, and the Venezuelan people are nowhere to be found right now. So, so it's an interesting kind of dynamic, but, uh, but uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll get to that. But in my opinion, what happened yesterday, it was the official internationally recognized end of democracy in Venezuela. Great. Thank you, Fernando. That was a helpful catch-up and summary of what, where we are today, because that's true. There are so many events going on in Venezuela that it's hard to catch up. <laughs> um, let's move on to the international community response, because that's where I think we can um, you know, help shape a little bit where, where we are and where we should be heading. Um, we have first, and we have the slide, or uh, uh, America's team, Mia Kasman, um, did this wonderful slide where it shows the Lima Group Declaration from January 4th. Again, the Lima Group Declaration, uh, for those who are not watching Venezuela closely, is, is composed for, from the most important Latin American countries like Brazil, um, Colombia, Chile, Argentina, Peru, and Canada, right? The U.S. is not part, but nonetheless, the U.S. is very closely engaged, and in fact, they uh, were in a, in a call, they call in when they, this declaration was being Discuss. So um, you can see here 12, the 12 main points where the Lima Declaration announced in January uh, 4th. And I want to really hear from, the, from our speakers their general assessment 
where, how important is this declaration? Where are the gaps? Why this declaration matters? And is this enough? And this is where I really want to get Ambassador and Fernando to the core. Is this declaration good enough based on what we're facing in Venezuela? Which is, again, it's not a dictatorship only. It's a mafia state that is controlling all the institutions, that is repressing the people. So uh, let's discuss this Lima Declaration, and we're going to get into more details. Ambassador, what do you think about the Lima Group Declaration? Yep. OK, let me start. If this were a United Nations declaration, we would say you had 12 whereas, uh, and those are the 12 that you see there, whereas this, whereas that, whereas the other. And then on the next slide, which you're not allowed to see right now, but there is one because I happen to have seen it, there would be the seven therefores uh, that are calling for additional action uh, or whatever might be required. Ladies and gentlemen, this was a good declaration. I want to say it quite clearly. It is tough, and yet it is fair in terms of the conclusions that it reaches and the action that it calls for. And those amongst us, and I include myself in that number, and several of you grouchy people that I can see in the audience right now, who have from time to time been mildly critical of the group of Lima in terms of what they have or have not done, have an obligation to acknowledge that this, in fact, was a good piece of work. I have now said it. And I'll go one step further. I believe it demonstrates, this is my opinion, no one has confirmed this for me, it demonstrates considerable leadership by the two most important South American governments and countries that are directly affected and impacted by what is happening in Venezuela today, and that is their two geographic neighbors, the Republic of Colombia and the Republic, the Federated uh, States of Brazil. Uh, and I want to acknowledge that leadership as well. Okay, ladies and gents. If this were the 3rd of January, uh, I would have offered some views as to what I thought the Group of Lima should do. And since I hate having to prepare twice for the same meeting, what I'm now going to do is use my list of what I would have said to you was what we needed eight days ago and compare it to what the Lima Group did last Friday the 4th. Great. First. I would have said it is imperative that they disavow the legitimacy of this government, this mafia state. I give them a check on that one. I, I in fact, think they have done a pretty good job in terms of saying clearly the results of the 2018 elections were illegitimate. Could they have gone further? Could they have taken another step? Yeah, maybe, but I'm going to give them uh, a, 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 a a check mark for, yes, having accomplished that. Second, that it would be imperative that they recognize the legitimacy and the authority uh, 
of the still sitting National Assembly uh, in terms of being a constitutional body that represents the genuine government of Venezuela. I give him a, 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 a check mark on that one as well. Again, could I have found a better way to say it that would be even clearer? Maybe, but support and recognize the National Assembly, that's, that's pretty good. I might have said uh, as, the, uh, as the sole uh, legislative body uh, in Venezuela, but you know, I, I'm not asking for perfection. I'm saying, has the Lima Group done well? Yes, they have. Third, I would have said to recognize uh, the the. Oh, I, I guess we'll call it the legacy uh, Supreme Court, uh, the TSJ of Venezuela and recognize its rulings. I give them a check minus on this one. They get the minus, they're, they're very good about talking about the integrity and independence of the Supreme Court. I do wish they had gone a step further and said, and respect and call for all countries in the world uh, to respect honor and follow their rulings. But nevertheless, they're on the check side. Number four, I would have said, call for the beginning of international humanitarian assistance now. They also get a check minus on my book for that one as well. You will see, not here, but if we go to the next slide, uh, you will see that they do eventually uh, call somewhere. I, I'll, I'll look at my own blipping thing. Sure. They, they, they call for the government of Venezuela to permit humanit international humanitarian assistance. I would argue today, the 11th of January, you know, uh, let, let's stop waiting for the government of Nicolas Maduro to acknowledge a humanitarian crisis and to invite humanitarian assistance. Let's call for it right now. Mm -hmm. Start delivering humanitarian assistance. Even if at the end of the day, what we get are videos and news broadcasts of trucks filled with essential food and medicine being turned away at the border, at least it is sending a message and sending a signal. I give them credit uh, for calling for the government to, uh, to permit it. I would say take it a step further uh, and by golly gumbo, say to the international community, let's start delivering now. And Perhaps later on, we'll discuss ideas in terms of the how and where to do that. Fifth, I would have said, I hope the Lima Group will call for the pulling or canceling uh, of, of diplomatic accreditation uh, for officials representing the government of Venezuela overseas. I don't quite get them to the check on this one. They call for reassessing and reevaluating. That's a good thing, and I understand the code here. They also have to, to acknowledge the reality, one, uh, that, that, they've, that, that many of them have a good number of Venezuelan diplomats who are accredited in their governments. This is the, the, the Lima group. And two, they've got a good number of, of their own <laughs> diplomats that are currently located in Venezuela. So they have to be more careful than perhaps we, sitting here in CS, SIS will be, but my own view is this would have been better if there were a clear signal saying it's time to start sending these boys and girls home. They do not represent a legitimate government. Sixth, I would have said it's, we should, it, they should state quite clearly, uh, do not provide visas 
to Maduro government representatives mm. to visit, uh, to reside, uh, to have full-time permanent responsibilities, say to the world, this is the time to stop doing that. Will there be exceptions? Of course, we acknowledge the reality. Venezuela is a nation of more than 30 million people, although its population is diminishing now, thanks to the superb work by Mr. Maduro and his government. But nevertheless, uh, there, there, there is the reality of having to deal with a nation of that size that, that, that does, has certain economic outputs that are of interest to the region and to the world, but nevertheless, a clear signal would have been helpful. Seventh, I would have said, time to disavow international agreements reached with the government of Nicolas Maduro. Now again, I acknowledge there are certain realities. Uh, you, uh, nations that have thousands of their citizens inside Venezuela have to be careful in terms of what they disavow and what they do not disavow. I wish the, the group of Lima had been a bit clearer in sending a signal to the international community that now is the time to, at a minimum, stop any further agreements with this government and terminate, cancel, disavow agreements that they in fact can do. I wish they had been clearer on that point. And last and finally, I would have told you a week and one day ago, it's time to call, as the Lima Group, to call for the, uh, I will call it the diaspora of Venezuela, which I calculate is somewhere in the vicinity of four million human beings. And even those who are most sympathetic to the Venezuelan government's position are saying it's perhaps two million. I say somewhere between two and four million. I wish the Lima Group would look upon them as an opportunity. That is to say, to call upon them to organize in some way. We do not need to say government in exile. I realize that has certain implications. But you cannot tell me that four million human beings who have displaced into 15 or 20 different countries cannot somehow organize themselves in terms of managing humanitarian assistance both for the diaspora, the refugees, as well as that which might be going into the country. Cannot organize themselves in some way to emit opinions or political decisions to support the efforts of the National Assembly that continues to reside inside Venezuela and a courageous political opposition that is hanging on by its fingernails, the diaspora has perhaps the ability to do some things that their colleagues, friends, and counterparts inside Venezuela cannot do now because it would, const it, would, it would produce their near immediate incarceration and give the, the international community uh, the opportunity to push for the diaspora to organize in some way. Will this lead to individuals being identified as leaders uh, for the future? Maybe, maybe not. If it does, they get there naturally by managing real world issues for two to four million people and growing in numbers uh, on how to manage Venezuela issues as part of the diaspora. Those are the eight things that I would have hoped for 
four from the group of Lima a little over a week ago. I think they did well or pretty well on four of the eight. I wish they had done more on the other four. It was a good declaration. Could have been better. Thank you, Ambassador. Fernando, give us your assessment on the Lima Group Declaration, but let's, let's push the ball a little bit further. Um, I, I want to ask you about these two points that, um, well, let's see, is number three and number 12. Number three says, we urge Maduro to not assume the office. That was, again, in January 4th. Um, uh, so January 10th came in, and he did not care about the Lima Group Declaration. He went and assumed the office of the presidency. And he also, the, the Lima Group also urged Maduro to transfer the executive powers to the National Assembly, which he hasn't done so far, and he likely will not do it either. Um, so now what? Like, now what the Lima Group should do if, on, on the number three point? And, and if you want to take on number 12 too, an ambassador, you hit on that too. Like, how do we get aid in South Venezuela beyond statements? I think that's a very important and interesting point. But Fernando, it's all yours. No, of course, thank you. Uh, you know, I, I, on the Lima Group Declaration, I completely agree with the ambassador. I, I think, uh, I, I'll be honest, I was very surprised when I saw it. I, I did not, uh, you know, uh, expect the Lima Group to actually go that far. Uh, I'd say that in the past, uh, you know, they've, they've been very strong in rhetoric, but very weak on substance. Uh, and, and I think, you know, I'll, and I'll take part of the responsibility for this, certainly from my time at the White House, we, we would praise them quite a bit for uh, existing in the first place. We would praise them for saying uh, the smallest things, right? Because, you know, a few years ago, we never imagined that Latin American countries would actually rise and, and speak out against one of their own, you know? And, and so we were just so thrilled when they would use rhetoric uh, that was in a positive direction that we saw that as enough and, and kind of let that be. Uh, but I think things have evolved quite a bit in the last few years, and, and it's time for action. I, I think there's no doubt about it. It's actually past time for action. But uh, so, so seeing that statement out there was surprising, uh, to, to see them all of a sudden have the guts to actually go out and, and say the right thing and actually threaten to back it up, right? But I'll be honest, it also scared me. Uh, and, and not for the reasons of, well, what if they back it up? For the opposite reasons. What if they don't back it up? That's what really concerns me about that statement. Uh, they have put themselves out on the line now. Uh, in some ways, I, I uh, was in the White House in 2013 when, when President Obama went out and, and did the uh, Assad red line, right? In some ways, I see this as an Assad moment, right? Where, where the Lima Group is now saying as a collective that it's time for Maduro to go. I mean, they, they say that flat out, right? Uh, uh, Maduro needs to go. He can't be sworn in again. Uh, and so, of course, he wasn't going to listen to them, right? I don't think anybody thought that on the 10th he'd say, oh, okay, you know, see you. Uh, so, so he didn't, and now he's been sworn in again, and so now what, right? Now you have your credibility as this group of countries on the line. What are you willing to actually do now? Because he's defied you. Uh, and, and so it is, it is a bit of a scary diplomatic moment, in, in my opinion. Uh, do you allow him to win and therefore lose your credibility and your legitimacy as a Lima group and as this group of countries and as dim diplomatic leaders in the region? Or do you push back? And if you're going to push back, how do you push back? And so I think that's the critical question right now. 
so assuming that they're going to push back and assuming that they're going to follow through, and, and I'll give credit to a few of these countries that already have. Uh, Paraguay, uh, and, and you know, God bless Paraguay, they're always up front on, on Venezuela, they're ready to go. Uh, they're, they're, uh, you know, they've gone full out, they've closed the embassy, they're, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're doing, uh, uh, I think, excellent work uh, showing leadership on this. Uh, you saw statements from Argentina yesterday, from Chile, from, uh, from uh, uh, Peru. Uh, surprisingly, not, nothing yet from Brazil, very surprised by that, at least nothing I've seen. Surprisingly, nothing yet from Colombia. Uh, but I'm sure that those two countries, I have no doubt that those two countries will be leading the way, not anything behind the ball. So, so again, I think, if anything, there's more to come than, than less, right? But what, what I think is critical is that uh, you know, we follow these statements, these strong, angry statements, up with action. Because if it's just rhetoric, if it's just more of the same, uh, then, then nothing's going to change. Maduro's not going to step down. So what can you do? What, what actions can you take? Well, you have to isolate Maduro. You have to isolate his inner circle. You have to get after his inner circle. So uh, I think you know, reevaluating diplomatic uh, status is 100% correct. I think uh, deciding whether or not you're going to allow them and who you're going to allow into your country is 100% correct. And frankly, you should be erring at this point on the side of allowing less people into your country, I think. Uh, I think the time for us to say, well, maybe this person can turn good and negotiate with us, I think that time's gone. Uh, I think we've tried every uh, approach we can to getting people to turn or, or talk to us. Um, and, and it's time for us to assume that these, the people left there are left there by choice and they are bad people, unless they want to prove us otherwise, right? But now the burden for those who are still there in that inner circle, for those who are still high-ranking members of the military and haven't turned on Maduro, the burden is now 100% on them. I think the, the time for us giving people the benefit of the doubt and saying, well, you know, maybe this guy will turn. Let's not sanction him. I think that time's passed. So, uh, so I think it's time to go after all of those people. No, don't let any of them into your country. Don't let any uh, uh, person into uh, a negotiating room. Don't take anybody seriously. Uh, and then I think the next logical step, and I think the real critical step, is to start prosecuting them. Uh, prosecute them under your uh, country's laws and then flag it to Interpol and put them on the red notice list. Don't let these people out of their country ever again, right? Because if you think about the criminal enterprise, the mafia state that we're talking about here, uh, it, it relies on the fact that a lot of these top level officials can just keep getting all this uh, corrupt money uh, and then go on vacation to wherever they go on vacation on, from Europe to Latin American countries to anywhere else they want to go in the world. Uh, and they spend the people's money, right? And so while the people of Venezuela are suffering desperately, uh, the top echelon of folks are doing quite well. Uh, and then we see that from the very top of Maduro and his steak dinners, right? So, so uh, you know, how do you put these people on the red notice list so that if they ever step foot outside of their country, they will they at least have the fear of being arrested, right? How do you keep them so that uh, inside Venezuela, so that uh, you know their only escape is say you know a, a trip to Cuba, which you know is not much better, uh, because you can have all the money in the world, uh, but if if you know your your corrupt money can't be spent in anything that actually gives you joy and pleasure, then that money is worthless, right? So so I think that's the critical critical next step. And and on um, on the last point on uh, humanitarian aid. Uh, you know, I, I worked for uh, USAID for, for a while specifically on this issue. It's a, it's a complete disaster. It, it's such a sad uh, situation uh, that, that this is a human-made disaster, right? There is no, there was no hurricane, there was no earthquake, there was no uh, anything that you can point to and say, you know, the people are suffering because of X. There's no disease, there's nothing. It was bad man-made decisions. 
purely and simply. And to this day, it's still that that is causing this, right? The fact that Maduro, uh, you know, uh, just, I think, you know, out, out of pure cynicism at this point, just pure evil, decides to not allow aid into his country. I mean, what good, you know, maybe a few years ago, you could have still said, well, he thinks that it would acknowledge the optics of, you know, it's a failing state. Uh, you know, he, there's no optics battle anymore. That, that game is over. Nobody in the world actually believes that this state is thriving, right? Nobody in the world actually believes that Venezuela is prospering. Nobody, right? Nobody. So, so how do you still not allow humanitarian aid into your country? How do you still uh, take that just brutal uh, step? Uh, and, and, you know, people talk about Maduro getting an exit ramp. I think his days of potentially uh, not being tried very harshly by, by whoever are, are numbered, if not already out, because, uh, you know, these types of decisions, uh, I, I don't see how, uh, how you can get away from that one day in the eyes of justice. You know, that, that's just, again, uh, the, the blood of the people of Venezuela are on Maduro's hands. There's just no doubt about that. Uh, and, and every day it gets worse, and every day his predicament gets worse. So, so I think uh, I, I completely agree with the ambassador. It's time for the international community to step up and to just force humanitarian aid in. Let him, let him have the military turn it out down. Uh, because the Venezuelan people need to see that image. You know, they need to see that there's no doubt about it uh, as to who is preventing them from thriving and who is killing them in the streets from starvation and lack of medicine and, and, and everything else. Thank you, Fernando. Going back to January 10th, I mean, we have now a new president of the National Assembly, Juan Guaidó. He's calling not only the international community, but he's calling the Venezuelan people, he's calling the military to recognize him and to recognize the National Assembly as the, as the presidency before he assumes the, the presidency himself. So we are facing a, a chicken and an egg problem that in policy we many times face, right? Um, so my, my question to, to you, Ambassador, um, is what, how do we deal with this dilemma, with this chicken and an egg dilemma? And what is stopping the international community to recognize Guaido as the president of the, of, of the republic? Yeah. Uh, I mean, with a, some sort of modifier in front of the noun president, the interim president or the transitional president, something that makes it clear that there's a realization that, that he also would not have reached the presidency through the normal constitutional democratic process. Uh, at, at, at this point, uh, I would be prepared to say you could make a compelling argument, a political argument, a diplomatic argument, but quite frankly, a legal argument uh, that any sovereign government in the world would be within its rights uh, to, in fact, make that decision and say that from our perspective, uh, Mr. Guaido is, in fact, at this time, the interim constitutional president uh, of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. Now, as we all know, there are times where a legal argument and a legal position has to come to grips with the real world in which it is being made and or implemented. And in the real world, as we all know, everyone in this room is fully aware, uh, Mr. Guaido is very, very restricted in just how much uh, he can or will be permitted to do under any 
circumstances inside Venezuela, uh, and that, that his area for, for maneuver is very precisely defined and limited, and if he crosses any of those red lines, he runs a very good chance of finding himself in a prison cell in the Helicoide or wherever uh, the Maduro government might choose to place him. So all governments of the world, and that's about 100, I think there are about 196 that are currently uh, recognized as members of the United Nations, do have to engage in, 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 in kind of two assessments as they make their announcements and their decisions. Decisions first, I guess, and then announcements. One is, are they comfortable with the legal analysis? I am. There are another 320 million or so American citizens who are entitled to their own views in terms of my government, plus another seven and a half billion or so uh, that are sprinkled around the world. I believe there is a solid legal case to be made that yes, uh, if, if the, the international community has concluded that the National Assembly at this stage and the, and the TSJ are the sole remaining constitutional organs and institutions uh, in Venezuela today, if this is the determination of those institutions, we haven't heard from the TSJ, but it wouldn't surprise me that we would, uh, then we have a legal right to say, therefore their determination is Mr. Guaido is the interim president uh, with the executive authorities of the presidency, we recognize that. That's one determination. The other one is if, if we or enough governments make that determination, are we basically just marching a man off to prison, uh, and, and that's that's a tough decision. And and this is why we're we're in meetings like this right now to work our way through these difficult problem sets, which allows me, despite the fact that you stubbornly refused to uh, to to put the question to me, uh, to roll back to what I was saying during my fascinating first presentation, or maybe it was the second one, and that is, let's take a look at this diaspora, ladies and gentlemen. Not just because there are four million Venezuelans in it but because by definition they are located outside of the reach of the current Maduro government in Venezuela. And can they do, to some extent, uh, perform some of the functions uh, that an interim president in Venezuela would normally want to do, would very much like to do, but is not going to be permitted to do so because he is in the control uh, of, of the, the, the tentacles of the octopus who, uh, who is running things in Venezuela today. And, and I'm not sure, I haven't thought this thing through completely, but you cannot tell me with four million human beings spread around the world, but for the most part concentrated in a few governments, there is not a way to establish some sort of permanent structure, some sort of organization within that diaspora that can pick up some functions that might eventually over time offer an alternative uh, to Mr. Maduro's government in Caracas. There, I said it again. Great. You didn't ask it, I said it. Good point, no, Tough. good point. I, I think the National Assembly can do that. They can transfer some powers to an organization outside of Venezuela. We can call it diaspora. We can also call it the legitimate representative of the National Assembly. Uh, whatever we, the way we want to call it, we, we should be thinking on that direction because it's right. Now that we have the support of the whole international community, let's, let's keep a, a legitimate representation outside of the country. Fernando. Ambassador just touching a point that I know there are concerns from the international community and is Juan Guaido's safety. 
I will argue, for example, that either way, if he assumes the presidency or not, he, there is a threat that he faced jail. Uh, I don't think if, if, if we recognize him as president, is that's where he's going to face that threat? No. The threat is now. It's happening now, especially because there's a dictatorship, there's a mafia state that is oppressing every single opposition. So it's not only him, it's all the National Assembly. And it's, to be frank, every single Venezuelan citizen is a threat to be uh, repressed. So what do you, is, is Juan Guaido's threat to face jail a concern that the international community should be thinking when making the assessment of recognizing him as president of, of Venezuela? Well, you, you know, I think it's, it's almost two different points. Um, I, I think to your point, uh, will, will he be jailed? Uh, yes, I, I think the answer is yes, right? Whether it's uh, tomorrow, if he tries to take the oath, uh, or if, it's, uh, if he doesn't try to take the oath, then maybe a month or two, once Maduro judges that the international attention has kind of died down a bit and he can get away with it. Uh, but, but I think you know, Maduro's proven himself time and again over the last couple of years to go after any opposition figure who uh, appears to in any way present a legitimate democratic threat to him, right? That's his style. Again, that's what dictators do. Uh, and so, uh, you know, will he go after him somehow? Yeah, I mean, whether it's putting him in exile when he leaves the country, or it's, you know, uh, home house arrest, or, or torture, uh, or, or just plain arrest, or all of the above, right? Uh, we've seen that play out with pretty much every leader of the opposition that's had a legitimate shot uh, uh, thus far. Uh, and I, I would not expect Maduro to all of a sudden change his mind and become a good guy now. Uh, so, so that will play out. The question only, I think, is, is will that happen sooner rather than later? And I think that might be affected by the decision of whether or not he's sworn in, right? If he decides to be sworn in, uh, say, tomorrow, uh, I wouldn't expect Maduro to stand by and allow that to happen and allow him to kind of flaunt uh, in Maduro's face, uh, you know, statements and speeches and, and tweets and whatnot. So I, I'd anticipate that that would just uh, uh, drastically alter the timeline and, and get him, you know, uh, behind bars sooner rather than uh, later. But, but I think, again, what, what's important here then is for the international community as it debates whether or not to recognize him, well, first of all, can we legally, right? And the ambassador made a compelling argument, and, and I'd love to hear from the ambassador on this if I may become the questioner for a moment. But, yes. <laughs> uh, the, because my, my understanding, and, and you know this way better than I do, was that the United States, for one, uh, does not recognize governments. We recognize countries, right? So, so we, uh, at least, again, when I've been briefed on this in the past, are in a, in a uh, difficult position, whereas maybe other countries in Latin America might be able to just kind of flat out recognize uh, an individual leader, we tend to say, well, we have an embassy in X country, you know, and, and that's that, right? So if, if uh, there are two opposing claims to leadership within X country, uh, I'm not sure that at least uh, there's a whole lot of precedent for us to kind of take a side, uh, you know, in, in that situation. I think we kind of just, you know, let the people figure it out. Uh, but, uh, but back to the, the bigger question, I think we need to be playing a game of chess here, not, not just kind of you know, making decisions uh, on the fly. Um, if we know that recognizing him will lead to his arrest and, and whatever else, right, possibly torture, uh, what is the decision at that point? Right? We have to have that decision made before we make the initial decision that causes this guy to go down into harm's way. Uh, it would be irresponsible of us not to play that uh, in, in a smart and, and, and uh, you know, well thought out way. Uh, and, and again, I say we have to back up whatever that step is with action. 
because uh, it's very easy for us to have rhetoric out of DC and for us to put out a statement saying we recognize this guy, but there are some real world implications to that for him and for people in the opposition right now in Venezuela and for the Venezuelan people, right? And if all that comes out of that is his detention and torture and nothing else, then I think we will have done a disservice to the greater good of the international community and, and of Venezuela. So, so I think, again, if, if we're going to take that step, then what action, what tangible action are we prepared to take to back that up if and, and when, really, uh, the so-called legitimate leader in our eyes of Venezuela is arrested and beaten and tortured? What else? Thanks, Amba uh, Fernando. Ambassador, you want to answer that question, how, how the U.S. will deal with you know, uh, two different institutions or governments within a country. This is, yeah. this is really, that hasn't really has many presidents, but can you give us a light on, on this issue? Recognizing country versus, versus government. Listen, let me offer you uh, the, the fruits of 39 years of experience in the diplomatic service of the United States of America. If at the end of a careful assessment and review, I hear from the Secretary of State transmitting the views uh, of the President of the United States that we wish to uh, recognize this particular individual as the President uh, of, uh, uh, of the government of another country. I will find a way uh, to find diplomatic precedent, uh, legal interpretations, and uh, as required, statements in the United States Code and, if I have to, the United States Constitution that will indicate this is what we can do and we will do it. If at the end of the day, uh, what I hear from, uh, this is imaginary, I don't work uh, for the Department of State any longer, uh, I hear from the Secretary of State that we want to be careful and not be drawn into this, despite uh, 180 million American citizens screaming at us to do it immediately right now. I will do a very careful review and assessment and find that never before in the history of the United States of America have we yes. ever taken the step of recognizing an individual uh, as president when there is another or others who, who claim the same position. Uh, I am both a diplomat and I even went to, uh, went to law school at the finest law school in the nation located in the city of Austin uh, of the Lone Star State. So I have no discomfort in, in assuring you that I could find a way to defend a decision either way. Fernando is actually making the, 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 the more pragmatic points, however. It, it's not really necessarily just a legal or diplomatic issue. Mm -hmm. We've got to think this one through in terms of what is, uh, from our perspective, best in the United States' interest. Second, what is in Venezuela's interest. Third, what is in the interest of those individuals inside Venezuela who are courageously trying to fight for some form of constitutional democracy in their nation. Now that should drive us, but it's not a legal issue and it's not really a diplomatic issue. It's let us figure uh, how, uh, who, who, it, 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 who we should be trying to support and help and how we can best do that. And at times, as Fernando has kind of suggested, just staying silent might be the best thing we can do. At other times, we might conclude that if we can get 50 other countries to join us more or less on the same day and recognize an individual, that might give him some degree of protection or at least make it harder uh, for him to be picked up on the street the next morning when he steps out of his house. It would depend upon the circumstances and it would depend upon who else is prepared to join us. Uh, it, it's not a one-size-fits-all 
it is not an always the same decision all the time, but it is very definitely something all of us, those who are or were in government, but as well as those who are thinking through and eventually informing the decisions of governments, how we should proceed. We can all, I'm willing to speculate, most of the people seated in this room right now agree that the Maduro government is not a good thing for Venezuela. That's, that's the easy part. The, the, the much harder part is hammering out, therefore, how do we, both as the United States of America, but the broader international community, uh, react to and respond to that. Sorry, I got on my high horse. I just no. couldn't stop once Thanks. I started. Thank you, Ambassador. Let's move on to the last point before we open it up to Q&A, and that's where we, we want to discuss about the implications, legal, political, diplomatic implications. We had the OAS just yesterday declaring, 19 countries declare to not recognize Maduro as president of Venezuela, at least not legitimately. He's not, he lacks that legitimacy, right? So um, what does this mean moving forward? What are the implications? moving forward, not maybe today, but in the next few weeks, in the next months, how is this lack of legitimacy from Maduro, and presumably National Assembly assuming its role, will affect the way countries do contracts, agreements, um, diplomatic relationships with, with, with the Republic of Venezuela? Um, let's leave it like that, but what are your sense, Ambassador, of where are we, how are we heading? Where, what type of implications are we going to be facing? Yeah. I'll just, I'll run a few, a few ideas off of you. There is one principle of diplomacy which has worked fairly well, I don't know, since, let's say, the uh, Helen of Troy, uh, whenever that was, about 3,000 years ago. That's the principle of reciprocity. The reason it works is because it's such a simple concept. Simply stated, it, it, it can be articulated. It's not. But it can be articulated in the following simple way. You screw us, we'll screw you. Uh, and we'll do it in exactly the same way. That, simply stated, is the principle of diplomatic reciprocity. You cancel visas for us, we'll cancel visas for you. You throw our diplomats out, we'll throw your diplomats out. You, 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 you cease to recognize uh, us and our government, we will cease to recognize you and your government, and so on down the line. We have to keep this in mind as we work our way through this problem set. And to a certain extent, it's more of an issue for other nations that do not have the benefits of a population of 320 million and, and a global presence and have perhaps the misfortune at this point in time of being located in the same region as, uh, as the Republic of Venezuela uh, that, is, that, that is pushing out between one and two million of its citizens every year, but you have to, to, to take that into account. That is one legitimate concern. Second, you've said it, and it's, it's, it's not just agreements, it's also contracts. There are many individuals and many companies and many organizations from many countries, that's four different minis in one single uh, statement, that have contracts of some nature uh, in or with entities in Venezuela. Uh, and, and some of them are, are to, to, to billions of dollars of value. And, and we do have to take the interests of those 
contractors into account. Now, we may take them into account, assess it, and say, tough luck, guys. Uh, you, had every, you had every reason to understand who you were closing a deal with. Or even better, you knew that this was a dirty deal from the very beginning. Uh, go cry to the judge. We are not going to take your concerns into account. Others who will say, we've been here for 40 years, why should we be held accountable and have to pay the price for, uh, for political changes? Somehow or other, we have to keep in mind, realize, and accept uh, that as we work our way through these issues, we are going to bump into people that will be making clear, coherent, and even compelling, that's three C words in one single sentence, uh, the arguments on contracts and figure how to play it. Third, and this is from the diplomatic and political uh, in, in the internet national community perspective, uh, let us keep in mind as we work our way through these problem sets, two not insignificant players in the international community, one which speaks overwhelmingly Russian and a second which speaks either Mandarin or, or Cantonese, uh, Chinese, uh, will probably not be on the side of the good guys on this matter. Now, it's only two countries, we can say, but they're kind of significant countries. They do have a substantial amount of investment, political, economic, even security in Venezuela. And we do have to remember, as we work our way through these problem sets, that they are not going to be allies or friends as we work these issues. Fourth, we've, we've already said it, both Fernando and I have worked through the issue fairly aggressively, I think. Let us remember the capabilities of the mafia state of Mr. Maduro to retaliate inside Venezuela. And that has to be something we take into account as we work our way through decisions. And finally, one thing, and I kind of, uh, I lived through the Marielle boat lift, ladies and gentlemen, of 1980, I believe it was, uh, which was the first time, I think, in recorded history that I'm aware of, at least, in which a government determined to use uh, as an offensive weapon its ability to push its own citizens out from the country and, and have them flood and overwhelm, if you will, the capabilities of another country. I watched that actually from my position in Maracaibo, Venezuela, where I was a first tour vice consul, uh, a very young man uh, in 1980. But I, I, I take the lessons that we kind of learned from that and I say, is this something else that Mr. Maduro could do? Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing in the course of 2019, between one and two million Venezuelans will hit the road and become refugees to escape their nation. Could Mr. Maduro decide to crank that up to five million? I, I, I bet he could. And it, regardless, it's something that we, we've got to, to, to think about as we work our way through this problem set. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. I do want to put a couple of quick questions for you, Fernando, and then we open it up. And it's pushing a little bit in the needle here. And, and I've been hearing these questions as well from so many people. One, the OAS. Let's talk about a concrete step forward. One thing that the OAS could do, for example, is to, to, name, to, to name or recognize a representative, not from the Maduro mafia state, which is now illegitimate, but from the National Assembly. Is that a concrete step that the OEA should be thinking to do now? And the second question is more the contractual agreement point of view. If Maduro lacks any legitimacy and the National Assembly is assuming that role, uh, should all the oil 
Venezuelan buyers uh, direct or force Citco and other other companies to pay not the Maduro mafia state, but the National Assembly. So there are a couple of questions that I know they're hard to answer, but I really want to get both of your quick thoughts, if you don't mind, and then we open it up. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, you know, I'll start by saying uh, a point I made earlier, which is, um, uh, I think, very critical right now. Uh, in, in, 27, in the summer of 2017, the Venezuelan people were there, and the international community let them down. You know, I, I admit that. I think the United States did a decent job, but, but I think the international community as a whole was not there when they needed the, uh, the international community to be there. Uh, now, uh, we have uh, the opposite situation. The international community is there. Uh, as of yesterday, you know, people were, were rallied up in the international community. Everybody was on the same page. We finally kind of all uh, are, are, you know, one big happy anti-Maduro family. Uh, but the Venezuelan people are not there. And, and so, you know, and, and not, of course, I, I understand the harsh situation that they are in, that they live in, that is all Maduro's fault. I understand that he uh, is, has done everything in his power to suppress his own people from being able to, uh, you know, uh, frankly, have enough food to show up in the streets to protest. But I have to say, the international community will not resolve this problem alone. It's impossible for the international community from the outside to resolve this problem. Uh, this problem will have to be resolved primarily by the Venezuelan people. It is their country. It is they who are on the inside. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I would, I if I was, uh, you know, understanding the circumstances the people are in, I would strongly encourage uh, as much as possible for people to show up again, for people to march, for people to say what they want. Uh, if people don't agree with Maduro's decisions yesterday and they live in Venezuela, it's time to show up and tell the world that. It's time to get this momentum to actually move forward together. Because it, what I think didn't work about 2017 could work right now. If we have all, uh, all the world marching in the same direction, uh, then, then we're going to be in a very, I think, uh, good place as far as putting that pressure, that actual pressure on Maduro and his inner circle, his cronies. But uh, again, uh, that, that requires first and foremost the people, and the people frankly need to lead. It's not the international community that's going to lead. So, so that's, that's my first point about kind of next steps and, and what, what really needs to happen uh, as, as quickly as possible for this momentum to not die. Uh, the, the next point I'd make on the OAS, uh, you know, the OAS uh, uh, took a while for them to get on board, you know, like, like others in the international community, and finally uh, we, we've gotten to a point where we can at least consistently get resolutions passed, which take 18 votes, uh, and if you saw yesterday's uh, resolution, which was very good, uh, it got 19 votes, right? So it just crushed the, the threshold of, of what is needed, and that's, uh, I'm glad that it passed. It's important. However, if you want to take any action at the OAS that is a little bit more significant, mm -hmm. uh, you're going to need 23 votes. Uh, and I'll tell you right now, there are not 23 votes at the OAS right now. There aren't. Uh, and and it's, it's incredibly frustrating. It's incredibly sad. Uh, if you read the Democratic Charter, of the Inter-American Democratic Charter, of, that is the basis of the OAS, uh, there is no clearer case study of a violation of that charter. There's no clearer example of why that charter was written than to prevent what is happening in Venezuela today. And every single OAS state, member state, signed on to that charter. And yet, 
you know, uh, still to this day, despite the plethora of evidence to the contrary, despite the uh, humanitarian crisis that is happening, despite the consequences of that crisis to the neighboring region, uh, there are still not, uh, not even 100% of countries, but two thirds of countries in the region that are willing to come out and do a strong action uh, on, on uh, Venezuela at the OAS. Uh, so it, it certainly raises questions about what uh, the, the potential um, you know, benefit uh, of using a multilateral uh, body would be at this point. Like the ambassador said, the UN is out of the question. Uh, Russia and China would veto anything uh, that, that you know, even mentions Venezuela. Uh, and, so, uh, and so we're left uh, asking, you know, can the OAS get something done? Yeah. Uh, and if not, let's be pragmatic. Let's, get, let's just stop going through that and let's go straight to Group of Lima and like-minded countries. Now remember, the like-minded countries that do vote at the OAS, the 19 countries yesterday that voted against Venezuela at the OAS, represent 95% of the population of the Western Hemisphere. They represent 98% of the GDP of the Western Hemisphere. I mean, you know, something's wrong here. Like that's not, you know, if 98% yeah. of the GDP, 95% of the population is voting a certain way and it fails, is that democracy? So, so you know, so, so we have a separate issue to deal with there. Yeah. But, uh, but regardless, that is the reality of where we are. And so I think you need to focus on the pragmatic and you need to get things done. You can't get stuck on this bureaucratic nonsense. Um, the, the final point I, I'd make is that, uh, you know, the, the, again, the momentum is there again. The hope is up again. Uh, I think there could be a real damage to the cause if this hope is once again shattered, right? We, we've been through this several times. Venezuelan people have, have been through this uh, numerous times, getting their hopes up, high expectations, only to be let down. Uh, I, I really hope that something big comes out of what we're going through right now. I, I do believe it's uh, one of the, the last best chances for this to be resolved uh, through some sort of constitutional or peaceful way. Uh, if, if it doesn't get resolved now, uh, in my mind, then, then we're, we're up against a situation where either we have a new Cuba uh, and this will be a permanent dictatorship for the next you know, X amount of decades, or we have violence. You know, whether that be a coup or whether that be a revolution or whether that be an invasion, uh, you know, the, the only way at that point, I think, that we, we end this thing is, is through violence. So, so we're really at a, at a fork in the road here. Uh, and, and I really hope that the Venezuelan people will come out, will, will uh, you know, show what democracy looks like to the world, to Maduro. Uh, and will uh, and will be able to uh, through through sheer force of will, with the support and, and full backing of the international community, uh, uh, get this dictator out of there uh, in, in as peaceful a way as possible. Thank you. I know, Ambassador, you have a thought, but just hold it. We we have many people <laughs> on the audience just waiting for the questions. I can't so. wait to hear. They're far smarter than we are. There's still two questions, uh, Pedro, and then one behind you. Yeah. Yeah, just wait for the microphone. Sorry, Pedro Urelli from Venezuela. Um, Moisés, I want to thank CSIS and, and the Americas program for continuously being on top of this issue. I think this panel that we have here is as good as you could get anywhere in the world and definitely in Washington. Thank you. And I do hope that the people who are making the decision in this country and those who are watching from other countries actually get a lead from two people who have been very close to Venezuela, probably closer than almost anybody that I know. Having said that, the question that I want to ask is related to the cost of usurpation. We're having an issue that essentially what Maduro is doing right now is usurping power. And clearly the pressure that has to come in is how do you raise the cost for him doing that so the usurpation lasts a short 
period as possible, and we eliminate this kind of confusion as to really who is the legitimate government of Venezuela. That vacuum, when Venezuela talk about vacuum of power, I think the vacuum in the world of having a country that most of the civilized world does not recognize, and one that they politically recognize, but they don't legally recognize in the real full sense of the word, that vacuum is the one that has to be closed very clearly. And I am of the thought that the people in Venezuela who are making this decision, and particularly Mr. Guaido, who at 35 years old, has the responsibility not just to solve Venezuela's problems, which are of our making, Fernando, and I agree with you, it's for us a solution, but a lot of our problems actually extend beyond Venezuela, and some of them, as Ambassador Brownfield mentioned, have huge geopolitical implications. So I think it's a little bit too much to ask that Mr. Guaido not only solves the problems that Venezuela has, but the problems that Venezuela has created, and the entanglements in which Venezuela has got, which I support that people outside probably know better what the implications of those are. So the question I want to ask both of you is, is recognizing, legally recognizing, Mr. Guaido, and let's not focus on whether he gets put in jail, which I actually doubt it because the cost of it will be almost unbearable. It'd be kind of the last great mistake of a dictator. Um, but if he has to leave the country or he has to immediately designate representatives of that government in exile to conduct the affairs of the country, if recognizing Venezuela legally is not actually a great way of putting a tremendous amount of pressure on the guy who's sitting in the seat of power actually can't pull the tools of power, cannot manage a foreign accounts, cannot interact on the debt, cannot manage any of the affairs of the country because those are now being managed by a group of people from Venezuela or from outside Venezuela that in clear representation of the only legitimate authority are running the country. So isn't that the kind of pressure that we should be applying on Mr. Maduro? Thank you. Thank you, Pedro. Let's do one more question right behind you, yes. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Sofia Abreu. I'm a student at Georgetown University. I'm from Maracaibo, Venezuela. And my question is the following. Um, many legal solutions were mentioned. Um, however, many back home feel that legal solutions would take too long or that legal solutions aren't sufficient to really address the rampant corruption systematic, systematically implemented throughout the entire government. Um, what situations or what possible solutions would uh, be applicable to the situation, given that to a certain degree the Venezuelan society is also corrupt? Thank you. Thanks. Well, we have a couple of questions that I think we want to answer first and then we'll move on to others. Um, feel free to jump in in anyone. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do Pedro's because that, that allows uh, Fernando to think of how he's going to respond uh, to La, la Pregunta Maracucha. By the way, I still have a good number of friends in Maracaibo, although I try not to speak about them in public. Because <laughs> I, 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 I would condemn them, I'm certain, to no end of, uh, of, of problems and concerns. Uh, but it's, I, have, I have maintained more friends from Maracaibo than from any of the other eight different cities that I have lived in in my 39 years of diplomatic service. Uh, Dr. Bodelli, I, it, it will, it, perhaps it will surprise you, perhaps it will not. I, I, I'm, I, I do the same assessment you do, and I think I reach basically the same conclusion you do, which is to say that by recognizing 
uh, something as the, the legitimate government other than uh, Don Nicolas Maduro and his, uh, a, a, and his band of musketeers, at the end of the day, uh, through, through its secondary impacts, which is to say uh, negotiating contracts, having international uh, agreements, being able to participate in, in international decision making, would actually increase the pressure more than the downsides of of, of recognition. That is not to say, however, that, that's <clears throat> that we should immediately make that decision. Uh, I've, I've reached this conclusion after a good 30 to 40 seconds of careful deliberation. I suspect if we spent uh, a, a, a few days with a, with a good number of government experts, we, we at least would owe due diligence to make sure we have assessed all of the potential impacts that would have, both on the recognizing governments and countries, as well as on Venezuela itself. And finally, as Fernando has said, and I, I am in complete agreement, we have an obligation to both consult with and think about the impact of what we're going to do on those that are still inside Venezuela. Uh, it, it doesn't mean they necessarily get a veto, but they certainly have a right to kind of say, we're comfortable with this, we're uncomfortable with this. But my own view is recognizing by whatever means we choose to do it so that it is consistent with our laws, our constitutions, and our, our long-established diplomatic process, uh, recognizing a, an alternative government uh, probably would, would produce more pressure on the non-recognized government uh, than by not doing that. That's my position. Mr. Kutz may now disagree with that or transfer himself to Maracaibo from 1979 to 81 when it was the pearl of, of all of Venezuela. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, just quickly to touch on Pedro's question first, uh, I, you know, I, 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 I agree in my mind, uh, again, without careful deliberation, that it would be more beneficial than, than uh, harmful. However, uh, I have been uh, thoroughly wrong in, in my internal beliefs in the past. I will say that I, I, when we'd call an interagency meeting, and I know the ambassadors attended, um, you know, probably dozens of thousands of these. Uh, I but, loved everyone. <laughs> <laughs> everyone does. Yeah. Uh, when you call an interagency meeting together, uh, and and you have the Department of Defense, the Department of Justice, Department of State, you know, depart everybody, everybody's at the table, and you say, you know, I have this great idea. We should install a vending machine at the airport you will hear all sorts of horrific ways that that can destroy the world, right? Like you will find out real quick that first of all, it's illegal. Uh, second of all, it's unconstitutional. Third of all, it can be arrested for having brought that up, you know, and then it will have been leaked to the press by that point, right? And it's just, just it's amazing when, how quickly these things all happen in an interagency setting. But, but the point is, uh, there are legitimate concerns that are raised and, and, and concerns that I certainly would have never considered or thought about. Uh, and, and there are specialists, uh, you know, when they're not furloughed, there are people who are working uh, for our government who are very good at what they do and very 
knowledgeable on very specific points of what they're working on. Uh, and, and again, whereas we up here are more focused on the big picture, uh, you know, there could very well be an uh, international specialist at DOJ who could tell you the incredible you know, difficulty that that would cause to a specific part of something that could impact the humanitarian situation on the ground. And maybe somebody at USAID knows this too. And, you know, and, and, and ramifications we can't predict that would be negative overall to the people. So, so I just think it does have to be very carefully studied and analyzed and, and uh, thoroughly debated uh, amongst those that have something uh, to provide of input on that. Um, to the second question, uh, on, on, what, uh, on the legal, uh, you know, what, should we follow the legal path, which would undoubtedly be slower, uh, or should we um, uh, follow uh, some other path, which, which um, uh, conveniently you did not name, uh, but, but I imagine would be a, a uh, more aggressive path, perhaps, um, uh, in the non-legal way. So, so I, you know, I think, I think I think there's not, it's not either or. You know, I think that's the thing we need to be doing now. I think the, again, it's not time for us to be slowly getting in line anymore. I think that time's passed. I think it's not time for us to be uh, going to the International Court of Justice and saying, great, we've done our part, wash our hands. You know, that, that time has long passed, right? Uh, but we need to be doing everything. It, you know, the International Court of Justice is, is a legitimate process and we need to go through that. And, and I'm glad the Lima Group uh, has reaffirmed that. Uh, and, and I think that is something that will ultimately make a historic and important ruling that will uh, help shape the course of how uh, you, you know, society looks back on what is happening in Venezuela. So that has its importance. Will that solve the here and now? No. And, and so I completely agree that that shouldn't be where we're putting all of our eggs, right? Um, uh, having said that, I do think that there are some legal processes that are worth doing right now that would have an impact on the here and now. And something I mentioned earlier about Interpol red notices, I think would be a, a, a perhaps very effective approach uh, to, to pressuring that inner circle of the regime. And, and I'd say let's expand from the inner circle to a broader circle at this point, because like I said earlier, if you're still there, you're complicit at this point until you prove otherwise. And it's not just let me run away you know, in another year and decide I've had enough. Like, no, you have too much blood in your hands now. You need to bring us documents. You need to, you need to point names, you know, testify, whatever it is. You need to now actively, if you're still there, you need to actively prove that you were not complicit or that you no longer, you're willing to uh, actively uh, help bring down Maduro at this point uh, to get off the hook. So, so you know, I, I think if, if you go through that red notice process, you're going to create an, an incredible amount of pressure. Um, you know, even the folks who help prop up evil dictators love to go to Disney World. It's amazing, right? They love to go shopping in Miami. Um, uh, they, they love to have their son or daughter study at Harvard or wherever else they, they pay for them to go to. Uh, or they love to uh, be able to, when they have uh, illnesses, travel to the best hospitals in the world and get cured, right? That's what they use their corrupt money for. Then they love to have their beach house in 12 different countries that they can just go travel to and, and uh, enjoy. Um, if they fear that they will no longer be allowed to go to any real Western civilized country, and that their only recourse will be Cuba, um, you know, maybe they'll still have some good doctors, but they're not gonna be very happy. And, and when you get unhappy bribed officials, well, maybe they're just not as effective as happy bribed officials, right? And, and that's when you get people to turn. So, so go after them with red notices, and I think that would be a very effective legal process that we should follow before we consider anything in the more extrajudicial realm. Yeah. <laughs> and we're seeing now Maduro reflections, like people fleeing the country now. We have that sample of January 6th of the former justice of the illegitimate Supreme Court based in Caracas uh, with the last name Zerpa, 
now he's in the US and he's, you know, he's on the other side now. It's well, interesting to see all this development. And just to jump in there, that was a point I was trying to make earlier. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not making decisions anymore, so I can just opine without any consequences. It's, it's great, great, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I love it, I love it. Uh, uh, I don't think that uh, that justice deserves uh, to be treated in any heroic or special way right now, uh, unless, unless he's willing to bring with him evidence of you know, corruption, of the dictatorship, the lack of democracy, of, but tangible, physical, transparent, go out and do a press conference and wherever he is, Miami, I'm guessing, um, uh, and, and announce what he has brought as far as physical evidence. Unless and until he does that, this guy is, uh, you know, as much blood is in his hands as everybody else's. You can't, you can't change your mind several years in after so many people have died and hope that, you know, all is forgiven. Uh, I, I think that time has passed. People now need to make it a very clear break uh, with, with uh, you know, substantive evidence being provided to help support the downfall of the dictator. Important point. I want to get a question from two Venezuelan journalists on the back. And they are perhaps hearing from, more, from the Venezuelan people more than anyone else in the room. So I want to get Carla's uh, question and Jorge's on the back. Uh, right there, yeah. Thank you. Um, Venezuelans are so grateful uh, with international community, but for so long, they are arguing, arguing that they can't resolve this crisis by them, them, themselves. Uh, and so, uh, and, and as you said, Ambassador Guaido is trapped. Uh, yesterday we had this vote in the OAS, but once they approved the illegitimacy of uh, Maduro's, they could remove regime's ambassador, for example, uh, from the hall as uh, inspiring a step, and they didn't. Which are uh, your remarks about that? Uh, about the region having this kind of exemplary actions, for example. And my second question, um, it's more straightforward, I promise. <laughs> do you think that this administration can do uh, something radical or decisive? Because we spent a year hearing from Donald Trump saying that every option is still on the table, even the strong ones. And of course, we want to know if that is uh, truth or can be real. Thank you. Jorge. Um, Jorge Gobian from Voice of America. I have the kind of the same question that Carlos did, but uh, a, a senior official of the Trump administration told to Voice of America that the next step of the, this administration, the administration will be really impactful measures against the, the, the Venezuelan government. What do, you see, what do you think could be or must be those measures from the US? Thank you. Well, we have a couple of questions. Um, I, I think one is, is critical, which is now what? What's next? We tried many things in the past. We know statements like the unprecedented Lima Group declaration, which I agree is a very good step, is not enough. It's simply not enough. More needs to be happen. More needs to be done. So, what's next from the U.S. government perspective? What should be next from the U.S. government perspective and from the international community? And and then Carla's question on, on on the removal of ambassadors and implications of that, if if you don't mind. Let's start with you, ambassador. Okay, uh, let me offer answers in the uh, in the order in which the the, the questions came. First. Removal and uh, not just ambassadors, removal of 
of, of other representatives from a body such as the OAS. Uh, the problem, ladies and gentlemen, as Fernando has, has already alluded to, uh, is the uh, kind of the, the internal order and procedures of, in this case, the Organization of American States, which classifies through its, I guess it's technically through its, 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 its charter, uh, the majorities that are necessary to take certain steps. And certain, uh, certain decisions can be taken by simple majority. Certain decisions require a, 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 a larger majority, and I think some actually require three quarters uh, in agreement be, before they can actually implement a decision that is taken. Uh, and I, we would have to review, but I'd be fairly confident uh, that expelling uh, an, a permanent representative from the OAS would require a supermajority, and that, as, as Fernando was pointing to, is, is going to be a problem as we push further in organizations such as the OAS, despite the fact, as he so eloquently and accurately stated, uh, the, the 19 that have so far taken a stand on Venezuela represent more than 95% of the total population of all of the Americas and more than 98% of the gross domestic product of all of the Americas. Should perhaps the, the, the charter and its procedures be reformed? Perhaps so, but Oh ho! That's going to require a supermajority uh, in order for every in order for such a decision to occur. Your point is a good one. It is, however, uh, the the price I guess we pay for the the rules of the organization that we have uh, have have joined, and let me tell you, based upon my limited experience, if you think the OIS is a problem, <laughs> just imagine, take that problem and multiply it by 10, and you're beginning to move into the United Nations in terms of how its system works. Second, a more radical uh, solution. A fair point by both of you uh, that, that having heard from, uh, and we're now, I'm Americanizing it, United States of Americanizing it, uh, having heard from this administration for two years about more aggressive solutions, uh, where's the meat, uh, when are we going to actually see something? Uh, and and I, I would argue first uh, that, that, it, it, that we have not been sitting on our hands. I believe there has been a far more effective and vigorous sanctions uh, approach over the last two years than we saw, let's say, over the preceding 200 years. Uh, and they are having an impact, as not just Fernando, but even an old grouchy guy like Pedro uh, Burelli just noted, uh, that the more of these guys that get sanctioned, uh, the more pressure it is bringing to bear upon them. So I, I, I do insist upon at least getting some recognition for what has already occurred. That said, I agree with you completely. We should be looking for ways collectively, or no, that's the preference, collectively, uh, to, 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 to take a more ambitious, good word, aggressive, frightens a good number of, uh, of people, uh, approach to Venezuela policy. I pointed to a few ideas uh, in the course of my incredibly powerful presentations, uh, and, and one is let's 
let, let's, let's stop talking about asking uh, Mr. Maduro to permit humanitarian assistance. Let's start moving humanitarian assistance to the border. Force him to say no and line up his armed officers to refuse to allow it to come in, or it comes in. Meanwhile, we unilaterally figure who within Venezuela, which is not the government, uh, could actually serve as the distribution mechanism. There are a few organizations that are big enough mm -hmm. Uh, well enough disciplined, have good enough hierarchy that could serve that role. I would say that's something being a bit meatier. Second, what can we do with the diaspora? We don't need to ask Mr. Maduro's permission uh, in terms of working with the diaspora. I don't have any specific ideas, but I do have concepts, and that is get them organized in some way, shape, or form. Let them establish bodies that have a permanent presence to perform certain functions. Uh, wherever they may be, and in my opinion, they should not be in Madrid uh, or Washington and, or New York. I think they should be much closer to Venezuela, even if it's a little bit hot and muggy down there, to actually be seen to be performing a serious role and let them then evolve as they make decisions uh, and, and, and build a permanent secretariat into something that begins to look like, smell like, uh, seem to be an alternative government to whatever it is that Mr. Maduro is projecting. And there are other beefier ideas out there as well, which I will not offer right now, but you can figure them out as well as I can. If you have two million Venezuelans that are living within 50 miles of the border uh, within Venezuela, does this give you some options and opportunities? Maybe. I think people should be taking a look at it. I'm sorry, Fernando, now you can walk me down from all those <laughs> wacky, crazy, idiotic ideas. <laughs> Fernando, uh, we're gonna we're gonna finish with you. We're talking okay. stuff. No, I, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I think the ambassador uh, said it well. Uh, from my perspective um, of, of of being in this uh, White House, the first uh, you know, roughly year and a half uh, working on Venezuela policy, uh, you know, we we weren't bluffing. I'll say that we we have taken everything that uh, uh, we've that. Well, let me say that any official statement that has been put out, I, I won't say everything that's been said, period, but every official statement that's out there you know, was considered, uh, was debated, uh, was discussed. Uh, and, and I'll say, you know, um, what can we do? We can do a lot. The question is, what will we do? Because what, what, are, what are we, the American people, prepared to, what, you know, what are we prepared to bear? Uh, and what will be uh, somehow beneficial in, in, in oh, oh, big picture to the Venezuelan people, right? So, so when we talk about what's left in that kind of escalatory roadmap that we crafted of, of actions against Venezuela, it's really, it's, it's oil embargo and it's, and it's war, right? I mean, that's at the end of the day, uh, unless there's been uh, another, you know, 38 meetings of the interagency and maybe some new bright idea, which I don't, which is firmly possible, right? And, and I'm not aware of, but, but in my mind, at least, those are the two main options left. Um, an oil embargo is doable. I mean, we can certainly do it. I, I don't even think, honestly, economically, that it would uh, uh, present a, a huge threat to the United States in any way, uh, especially uh, right now with gas prices at the, w the way they are. The, the question, though, is uh, what will be, in the, be the impact to the people of Venezuela? 
right? If we all of a sudden, the United States controls about 95% of Venezuela's GDP through oil purchases, right? Uh, Venezuela uh, sells uh, its oil primarily to the United States. It gives away a lot of oil to China as debt payment. Uh, but as far as oil that it makes money out of, that's all United States. I think two or 3% of its GDP goes to India, but primarily United States. So if we were to shut that down, if we were to say tomorrow that this has stopped now, uh, then we have destroyed uh, Venezuela's economy, literally. It's, it's, it's destroyed, it's in shatters. Will that be good or bad? You know, and I, and I don't know, I can't answer that question. That, some people would argue that would be great, that would be the spark that's needed to get the people to revolt against Maduro. Uh, other people would argue that that would be a humanitarian calamity, you know, and, and, and the people would be starving and dying in the streets and that Maduro would then at that point and perhaps with others rightfully point to the United States and say, this is your fault, you did this, you know? So, so it's, it's a real uh, pickle that you'd be in. Uh, and it, it would be a situation where certainly from a U.S. policymaking perspective, uh, we would have broken it. And, and as Colin Powell says, if you break it, you own it, right? So, so uh, are we prepared as the American people, as the American taxpayers, to uh, go in with the uh, billions and billions of dollars that will be needed, dozens of billions of dollars, uh, to, to fix the, the um, uh, humanitarian crisis that, that we may very well initiate by doing that, situ that uh, decision? Uh, you know, again, that, that's where we are. It, it, it's been debated, it's no doubt being debated right now, uh, but uh, you know, it's, it's a very big decision to make and it, you have to consider the ramifications. Gentlemen, this has been an honor being with you in this panel. Thank you so much. I think the main conclusion, if you let me, would be doing, and, and, and we have proved this, doing nothing for Venezuela has brought tremendous consequences, so actions need to be taken. Thank you so much. Thank you all of you for coming to CSIS, thanks. Thank